Hey, New City. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Roger Rushing, and I am one of the pastors on staff here at New City. I'm so grateful to be with you today and to have the honor of bringing the, the message today as we continue our, our walk through some of the Psalms in our series as we learn what it means to pray the Psalms together with Jesus. You know, the book of Psalms, it, it covers a, a full gamut of human emotions. You have some that are, are joy and songs of victory and excitement and happiness. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we call Psalms of lament. Psalms that deal with, with fear and with suffering and pain, anger, anguish. This is one of those Psalms today, Psalm 88. It's not the only Psalm of lament, of course. We have 150 Psalms in this prayer book and many of them are at least in part Psalms of lament. And most of those Psalms, they have the same type of, of elements within them. And so they'll have, they'll have complaint and they'll have this situation being laid out before God. They'll have petition where they ask God for rescue or ask God to change the situation that they're in. But interestingly, most of the, the Psalms of lament have a time where everything shifts. There's a moment in the Psalm, sometimes it's halfway through, it's often very abrupt, where all of a sudden there's something that happens in the space between the lines because the lament suddenly changes to praise and once again to thankfulness. And sometimes what happens in that space, I think, is that God rescues the psalmist. I think that God enters into that space and, and changes the external situation and the external circumstances. So if enemies are attacking, maybe he saved the psalmist from those enemies. But other times I think that God has entered into that space in a way where he's encouraged the psalmist. He's strengthened the psalmist and, and re-enlivened the psalmist so that even though the circumstances that he's facing are bleak, he's got this new steadfastness because of this encounter with God. And almost every single lament psalm has this, this moment of change, whether it's in the middle or towards the end. Almost, I say, because there's one that doesn't. This is the only psalm in all 150 that doesn't make that shift. This isn't a psalm about praise and thankfulness. This is a psalm of darkness and death. It's the only psalm that doesn't resolve. And the psalmist is using really powerful language throughout the psalm to, to make his plight known. He talks about Sheol and the pit and Abaddon. All of these words are, are synonyms for the same thing. It's the place of the dead. It's the netherworld. It's that place where where the shades and the ghosts move about, but it's less than alive. It's that place that's forgotten by God. And we have to remember that the Psalms are poetry. It's always hard when we translate poetry from one language to another. We lose so much and we miss so much of what the author is showing for us. But this is poetry and, and this poet is skilled. He's using all of his tools, not just the words, but even the order that he's putting those words in. You know, syntax is something that in English is really difficult for us to play with. It's that word order, the way we create sentences. And even our best poets, they have difficulty using syntax in new ways. There are a few that can do it. I think of Yoda. Uh, Yoda is probably our best example of one who plays well with syntax. Um, but this poet is using Hebrew, not English. And in Hebrew, it's much more flexible. So even the word order is something that the psalmist is using to tell us what's going on and to make his point known to us. And so we see this not, not very easily in English, but we can point it out. If you look at the first verse in our psalm, uh, verse 1, it starts out, O Lord. And anytime you see Lord in all caps like that, you should know this is a translator telling us that that's the holy name for God. 
That's Yahweh, the covenantal name that God gave to his people, especially the Exodus when he was speaking to Moses and Moses said, who should I say has sent me? And he reveals himself in a new way and by a new name. That's what Lord is whenever it's all caps like that. And what the poet is doing here is Lord is actually the very first word in that clause. And Lord shows up several times. There are three other times that it shows up in our passage. But what's interesting is while, while it's the first word in that clause, the next time it shows up, it's the second. And then the third. It keeps moving further and further away. It's like the poet is using syntax even to say that the more I cry out, the further God is from me. And so finally, he's left with this last word. And in the translation that we just read, it preserves the syntax in that Hebrew verse. Other translations move it around to help it make a little bit more sense. But even in English, in the ESV, we can see that the final word of this psalm is darkness. And so the psalm starts with God, and it ends in darkness. And during this entire psalm, this lament that is so powerful and so gut-wrenching, the psalmist makes only one petition. You know, usually when we think of prayer, we think of it being filled with petition. And especially if the situation's bad, we have a long list of the things that we need God to fix and how we want him to fix it. But the petition is so small in this psalm that you might have missed it. But look back at verse 2, and the psalmist says, Let my prayer come before you, Incline your ear to my cry. His only request is that God would hear him. Now, I believe that this psalmist, with whatever was going on in his life and the hardships that he was facing, I believe he probably prayed other prayers of petition. He probably asked God to save him and to rescue him, to cause the suffering to end and to deliver him from his circumstance. But at this time, he's gotten to this point of desperation where he is on He is on the precipice of the pit, and his only petition is, God, hear my cry. And yet what we're left with at the end is not a resolution where God hears, but we're left where the psalmist is far away from God, and the only thing left is darkness. I think the, the darkest darkness that I've ever experienced in my life, the time when I, when I was really in total and complete and utter darkness, was a time when I was in an underground cave in Mexico. Joanna and I, Joanna and I had gone to Mexico, and, and it's one of those places where the, the aquifer runs below the ground, and so you're able to enter into some of these streams and underground rivers. And so we'd gone with a guide and probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 other people in our group. We got all of our gear. We got our spelunking helmets and we got our lights and all that kind of good stuff. And we started out, you start out with this huge cave entrance. And the light is shining in. The sun is bright. It was a hot day. And the water is just trickling in. It's barely even noticeable. But as you move deeper and deeper into the cave, the light fades more and more. The water gets deeper and deeper until finally you can swim in it. And each turn and each passage we entered into was something new and different. I felt like we were experiencing it or exploring it for the first time. The beauty was just unbelievable and and, and the variety, some of the rooms were great and some were these little tiny passages that you were claustrophobic moving through. But the whole time, the 15, 20 of us, we all have our lights and we're all looking around and shining the light all around and seeing all this beauty and wonder. But then when we got to the heart of the cave system, Our guide had us all gather in this giant room and we're up to our necks, we're treading water now. And he said, hey, 
I'm going to give you a signal, and when I do, you're all going to turn off your lights. And so we waited, and, he, and we got ready, and he gave us a signal, and at the same moment, all of our lights went off. And suddenly, that darkness that I knew had always been there, but that had always been off in the distance and kept at bay at the edge of my field of view, it's like it rushed in. And I'm not a poet, so I don't have the words to describe what it felt like, but you could feel the darkness. It was palpable. It would, it, it's like it rushed in. It became thick around you. It was almost crushing in a way. And it was complete and total. It wasn't the kind of darkness that your eyes could adjust to and then you would see. It was dark darkness. And what's interesting too is when Joanna and I, when the lights went out, we were holding hands right before we turned off our lights. And the second the light went out, there was something instinctual inside of us, something, some type of primal response and we grabbed each other's hand tighter. It was almost like in that moment that, that we were afraid that if we let go of the other one, we would lose them or that we ourselves might become lost. And it was a ridiculous, it wasn't rational. I mean, Joanna was inches away from me, feet from me, there were 15 other people. We were all there still, our guide was still there. He knew the way out. We were still safe. We had the ability to turn on the light at any moment. And yet that darkness rushed in and it was such a, a bone-crushing, breath-stealing darkness that it, it was like we instantly became alone. And so we held on to each other, desperate not to be lost. I think that's a hint of the darkness that the psalmist is talking about here. And so it's bleak. This is not a happy psalm. I don't know, maybe you've tuned out by now. You're like, hey, I went to church for a different reason. When's the music start again, right? This is tough, but we have to ask ourselves, why is this psalm even in the Bible? There's 150 psalms. You would think that as they were gathering all the psalms together, they could leave out just one. In fact, I'm sure that there are other psalms that were sung by the congregation that didn't make it into this book. So if they really wanted 150, they, a nice round number, they could have picked another one. Or I don't know if you've noticed, some of the psalms are really short. I'm sure somebody there was smart enough to, to pin a couple paragraphs real quick and take the place of Psalm 88. So why is this psalm included? So weirdly enough, I think we get a hint at what we've been calling kind of the title of the psalms. So not all of the psalms have this. It's, that, it's those words that come before the first verse. It's kind of a preface, a, a list of instructions or an introduction. And not all the psalms have one, but this psalm does. And I'd like us to read that now and just hear these words. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master according to Mahalath, Lehanath, a mesquil of Haman, the Ezraite. That's a mouthful. It's a mouthful not just because the, the words are unfamiliar to us, but there are just a lot of them. It's a lot of introduction. In fact, it's the longest introduction of any of the psalms that are introduced. In the, in the whole collection of psalms. And what's interesting is a lot of scholars say that the reason that this, that this instruction is so long and that it's so wordy, there's so much to it, is because it's representative of the fact that this psalm has been gathered time and time again. So it probably started out as a psalm of one family, one clan. They probably knew intimately the situation that, that spurred the psalmist to pin these words. They probably sang it at his funeral and at all of their funerals after that. But eventually, that clan song, that family song was taken up by the tribe. And then as it was taken up by the tribe, eventually it was taken up by other tribes and other tribes, and eventually we see it taken up by the congregation as a whole. 
The entire nation of Israel embraced this psalm and sang this psalm together. In fact, they sang it most likely at the darkest times of their history, not least of which was the exile. Probably those who were left in Jerusalem during this time, when exile came and the temple had been destroyed, they probably gathered in the broken and ruined courtyards of the temple and they sang the psalm together. Probably those who were in exile in Babylon carried this song with them and they sang the psalm in a foreign land and they cried out to God time and time again, where are you, Lord? Hear our cry. Why are you so far from us? See, I think that the reason that this psalm made it into all those collections and then finally made it into the book of psalms that we have today, I think the reason it's there is because there's something universal about what the psalmist is feeling. I don't know if you've, if you've had a similar experience. I don't know if you know what it is to feel the darkness that is described here in this psalm. Over and over again, he uses words of death and anguish and suffering. I don't know if you know what it feels like for that darkness to press in around you. I don't know if you know what it feels like to feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and going unheard by God. I don't know if you've ever gotten to the place where all of your other petitions have stopped and in desperation you're just crying out, God, just hear me. Could you just hear me? But I'd be willing to bet that if you haven't had that experience, there's a really good chance that you will. And if you haven't, somebody around you, I'm willing to bet they have. And maybe they're having that experience right now. So I think this psalm is included because it gives words in places where we wouldn't have words otherwise. It gives us language to pray these emotions and these feelings and these thoughts. But I think it's interesting that that this psalm is included in the Bible for another reason, because if you look at our scriptures, they aren't sanitized, they aren't clean. They have both what what Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, he calls testimony and counter-testimony. So there's all these places that testify about who God is and the way that God works with the world, but then there's all this counter-testimony that raises difficult questions. One of those difficult questions is this place of God-forsakenness, this place where the psalmist is abandoned. There's no confession in this psalm. There's nothing that says that this was warranted, that, that God's wrath or God's absence and God's abandonment was warranted here. He cries out and begs for God to hear him, and yet he's forsaken. And what's interesting, too, is this isn't the only counter-testimony of God-forsakenness that we have in the scriptures. Another big one that comes to mind is Job. The entire book of Job serves as counter-testimony about a man who was forsaken by God. Job starts out with this man who, by all accounts, even by God's, is righteous above all others, following after God, doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. And not only that, but his life is blessed as a result. He's getting all of the things that we would expect him to get. He's been blessed with a large family. He's got all these homes. He's accumulated all this wealth. He's even got standing in his community. And so we have this testimony that says that when when we do good things, when we follow after God, God rewards that, and we are blessed in these good ways, and we see that in Job. But then we have this weird drama that plays out. We get a peek behind the curtain in kind of the the control room of heaven, and there we see God, and he's holding counsel. 
And something very strange happens. It says that Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, comes before God. And God initiates this conversation. He says, hey, Satan, have you seen Job? Man, look at how righteous this guy is. And then Hasatan, the, the accuser, he says to God, God, the only reason that God, that Job follows after you, the only reason that he's righteous is because of all this stuff you give him. If you let me take that stuff all away, I guarantee you that he will not only not praise you anymore, he will curse you to your face. And then we have the absolute strangest thing that happens in all of the scripture. We have God answering back to the accuser and he essentially says, I'll take that bet. And he lets Satan have reign over Job's life and Job, who knows none of this, None of this has been revealed to him. He's doing everything right one day, is getting blessed one day, does everything right the next day, and then he is cursed. And he is cursed beyond our imagination. I mean, he loses everything. All of his homes are destroyed. His family is killed. All of his wealth is stolen from him. His standing in the community is ostracized and seen as one who is forsaken by God. Not only that, but eventually God gives Job's body over to Satan. And so he, he has all these boils that break out in his flesh. And he is so in pain and so uncomfortable, he can't even sleep at night. And so Job, he leaves the city and he goes out to the garbage heap. And he sits down on the pile of garbage. He tears his clothes. He covers himself in ash and in dirt. And he weeps and he mourns and he laments and he cries to a God who does not answer him. He is God forsaken. And it's not just the psalmist of Psalm 88, it's not just Job, but we have further counter testimony of one who is God forsaken. We find him in the New Testament in a garden. There, Jesus is gone. It's the last night of his life. He knows what's coming, the suffering, the anguish, the torture, the pain, the death. He's gathered with him his closest friends and he has begged them, keep watch with me, pray with me. But his friends are off in the darkness somewhere asleep. And Jesus is left alone in his anguish. He says that his soul is troubled to the point of death. It's like he's sweating blood because he's so anguished. And in the midst of that, he cries out and he says, Abba, Father, this is the son calling to the father and he says, Father, let this cup, this cup of suffering and death, let this cup pass from me. And he prays that prayer over and over again. And I don't know if he got an answer. I don't know if we heard a response. The scripture records only silence. And eventually the son submits and he ends his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. A few short hours later, he's hanging on a cross. He's dying. And there he reaches back to the Psalms once more, and he quotes from another Psalm and cries out, this time not Father, but this time God. You can see the distance happening. You see this, this paradox of God forsaking God as the Father forsakes the Son. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. And his body is taken off of the cross, and it's, it's pushed into the pit. 
It's left in the grave and the tomb is sealed and the only thing that remains there with Jesus is darkness. For he too has gone to that place of God forsaken. But here's the thing. Here's the miracle of it all. The father doesn't forget the son. The father doesn't leave him alone in that silence and that darkness. And we don't know what happens in the space between the lines. It's concealed from the gospel account. But we know that somehow the father reaches into Sheol, reaches into the pit, reaches into Abaddon. He reaches down and he pulls his son back. He pulls him back from the place of death and he is alive again. The stone is rolled away and the darkness of the tomb is shattered by the light of Sunday morning. And so when the women come to the tomb to find Jesus among the dead, he is not there for he is not dead. He is risen. He is alive. But here's the other thing that happens there. Because now Jesus has gone to the place of God forsaken and therefore there is now no place called God forsaken because even there God goes before us. Even in our darkest, deepest depths, Christ is but a few inches away reaching out his hand to us to say that you do not have to be lost, that you can hold on to me. See, Jesus is there in the darkness with us And Jesus has redeemed even the place of death. So that no longer does Psalm 88 have the last word. Darkness doesn't have the last word. But Christ's redemptive work, God's love and forgiveness and restoration of life, that has the last word. So the question then becomes, what do we do when the lights go out? Because if we're honest with ourselves, it's great to say that there's no place that's now God forsaken and that Jesus goes before us and that Jesus is even there with us and then he suffers with us. But it doesn't take away from the fact that we still feel really and intensely and powerfully sometimes the words of Psalm 88. We're there with Job on the, on the dung heap, on the garbage pile with our torn clothes, just begging God to hear us. So what do we do when the lights go out? First thing I would say is lean into community. It's often the exact opposite of what we want to do. We often segregate ourselves and move ourselves and isolate ourselves and hide ourselves from community in these times. And we do that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we do it because our God talk, our theology, our talk about God hasn't been quite right for us. We've learned some some bad God talk that tells us that Christians have to act a certain way and be a certain way. We have to have it all together. We have to be happy all the time. We understand that joy is a foundational part of the Christian life, and yet we have such a hard time understanding the difference between joy and happy. In everyday life, they're just synonyms. So we think we have to be happy, and happy people smile, and happy people are always chipper, and And when we have life experiences that call all of that into question, then we have to decide if we change our God talk, if we adjust our theology, or if we protect it, if we shove all that other stuff down when we put on a fake mask and we try to live into the expectations that we think are there for us. And so often we confuse our God talk with who God is. And so we feel like we have to defend our God talk, and in so doing, we feel like we have to defend God And when we find ourselves failing at that, we isolate from community 
either because of shame or because we feel like community has failed us. And you know what? Community fails us. I mean, go back to Job. Community fails Job. He's there on the dung heap and his friends show up. And it starts out beautiful. They sit down there in the dirt with him. They sit in his suffering and in silence they mourn with him for seven days. Community shows up. But eventually his community gets tired. They say seven, that's enough, man. And eventually the community is moved by, by their God talk. And they begin to be shaped by their theology and they start to respond out of it. And their understanding of who God is is that God forsakes you if you forsake God. See, the only reason that bad could have come to Job is that Job has done bad. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. That was their understanding. And so they begin to defend their theology, they begin to defend God, and in so doing, they begin to attack Job. And they tell him, Job, come on, man, you're in this spot because you've sinned. What you need to do is confess and repent and turn back. God will welcome you back, he will restore you but you've got to stop deceiving yourself and trying to deceive God because you can't. And Job answers back. He basically says, I wish that were the case. If I had a sin to repent for, I would repent. Then all of this suffering could end. God could take his hand of wrath back from me and these bones that he's crushed could live again. But he doesn't have that because that's not what's going on. So sometimes community fails us but we still have to lean into community because we often find that community is where God reaches out to us. See, we are called the body of Christ. He is our head and we are the body. We are the hands and the feet of Christ. And so often Christ moves into the darkness through his body. And so often the community is there with arms open wide and they have genuineness to accept your genuineness and they have brokenness that they face, but they meet your brokenness and together they might not have words, but they'll sit with you in the dung heap and mourn and join you in crying to God. And God works in that and moves in that and can bring us back to that. So lean into the community and look for God. Look for God. I mean, it sounds like, I'm looking for God, if God would just show up. But so often we beg God to come to us and sometimes we need to go to where we can find God. So look for God and so you might ask yourself, great, where do I find God? Well, if you wanna find God, go to the broken places. If you wanna find God, go to the dead places. If you wanna find God, go to the dark places. For it is in the broken places that you will find the God who reconciles the world to himself, making things new, restoring things, and putting them back together. You'll see it most clearly in those broken places. It's in the places of death that we see most clearly the resurrection God who reaches into the jaws of death and pulls life out, who causes gardens to spring up from dry grounds, who is doing a new thing, who is bringing to light a new creation. So go to the dead places, and it is in the dark places. It's in the dark places that we see most clearly that the light of God is shining. It's there that we see the light of Jesus Christ, a light that though it's surrounded by this thick and heavy, oppressive, breathtaking, bone-crushing darkness, and yet it is a light that has not, cannot, and will not be overcome. 
And it is there that we see that Jesus is our hope and our salvation forever and ever and ever. Amen? So go there. Look for God. Lean into community. And in the meantime, don't stop crying out to God. Don't stop crying out, even though time and time again you feel like your prayers go unheard, that they bounce back off the walls, that the only one listening to you is you or maybe your dog in the room, but that God is getting further and further away with each cry. Don't stop crying. Because even though it doesn't feel like it, God hears our cries. And not only does God hear our cries, but Jesus cries with us. When we pray the words of Psalm 88, hear that Jesus prays those words with you. He is the one who has gone to that place of God forsaken, but now he is our high priest who takes our words of God forsakenness, our lament and our complaint, and he takes that and mediates that to the Father. See, Jesus knows God forsaken. And so he uses those words, he prays those words with us. And Jesus is there with you. He hears our cries. He is with us. There's a rabbi who tells a story about a young boy, a little boy who's lost in a forest. And he keeps crying out and crying out and crying out to his father over and over again. And he keeps crying out because he knows that even though his father isn't answering, if he keeps crying and keeps crying, there's still hope. There's still hope that his father will hear his cries and will answer back and that he will find his way, and he won't be lost anymore. So keep crying, and cry out with others. Cry out with others. Even if you find yourself in that darkness, and you think, I have no, no energy with which to cry for anyone else, cry with them. And if you find yourself in that place of light, and you find yourself in that place of joy and celebration, don't forget to cry with others. And if you're not sure who to cry for and who to cry with, I have a great suggestion. Cry with the marginalized. Cry with those who are pushed out to the edges because I tell you what we see in scripture over and over again, God hears the cries of the marginalized. I mean, the whole Exodus story, I referenced it earlier, but the whole Exodus story starts with a band of slaves crying out to God because they have no other option. It's a band of slaves whose sons are being taken from them, whose sons are being killed by a power that is greater than them, a power and a system that see them as less than human, a power and a system that sees them as other. They are enslaved and upon their backs is being built the empire of, of Egypt, an empire that sees them at best as a commodity, as something to be used and to further the empire but at worst is seen as a threat, something to be feared, as something to be pushed down and kept in its place. And so you see that Exodus starts with the cries of the people and in Exodus 2, 23, it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And this is one of the most beautiful verses. And God heard they're groaning. God heard the people and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people. He hears them and he sees them and he knows them. 
Again, in Exodus chapter three, in verse seven, it says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Then skipping to verse nine, it says, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. See, God hears the cries of the marginalized, and so we need to hear them too. We need to take time to listen. And as my friend reminded me this week, we need to listen, not not in some way where we're thinking about what we're gonna say next or we're trying to make a plan, but we're actively listening so that we can hear, so that we can hear their stories and recognize that their stories may not be our stories and not to take their stories on, but we have to hear the cries and the stories of the marginalized so that we can know them, so that they can be heard, so they can be seen, and so that in hearing them and knowing them, we too can experience that suffering. Our hearts can break with their hearts, and then we can add our cries to theirs. So we can join with them as they cry out to God. We can join with them as they cry out against the powers and the oppressive systems. So we have to listen and hear and see, but we need to remember that God hears the cries of the marginalized, and we need to too. In fact, later when God has brought his people out of Egypt and he's forming them into this new nation and he's giving them this new land, he starts to lay out for them what it means to be in covenant with him, and he begins to give them rules and instruction. But in that, he also tells them over and over again, remember where you came from. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. And he tells them time and time again that as you become more powerful, you have to care for the powerless. You have to care for the widow and the orphan and those who are pushed to the outside, the sojourner, the immigrant, those that society might call the other. You have to look to them and care for them. You have to hear their cries. And then in a dire warning, he reminds them in chapter 22, verse 23, if you do mistreat them, if you take the place, if you become Egypt to them, he says, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will hear their cries. So God hears the cries of the marginalized. We must hear them too. See, if we're gonna be good news people, if we're really gonna be good news people, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna love in the way that Jesus loves, if we are going to be his church, if we are gonna be his body with, with Jesus as the head, if this is what we're gonna do, then we have to be willing to suffer because God loves supremely and that means that he suffers supremely. We have to be willing for our hearts to break and they have to break for the things that break the heart of God. We have to mourn with those who mourn and we have to cry with those who cry. And we have to keep crying and keep crying and keep crying out. Because if we are going to be good news people, if we're gonna be his church, if we're gonna be his body, if we are going to love as he loves, if we are going to be Christians, then we have to be there when the lights go out. We have to be there reaching into and out of the darkness and holding the hand of the one next to us that maybe can't even see us because the darkness is so bleak, but holding on and saying, all is not lost. You are not lost. Hope is not lost. Because darkness is not the last 
word. We close out our services here at New City and we talk about, we talk about giving. We talk about what it means to, to further the mission of God and to live that mission out. And I want you to know that, that New City is active and alive and working on a lot of these levels of systemic issues. You hear us talk about Shine and Ciudad and, and the harbor and these other partnerships that we have, but you have to understand that, that these are done from a place where we're trying to deal with issues, real issues like systemic poverty. We're trying to enter into those dead and broken and, and dark places. And we're trying to, to shine the light of God. We're trying to image God. We're trying to allow God to work through us to bring new life there. And so in giving, that's part of what you're doing is you're supporting that mission. So I encourage you if, you, if you want to give, give. Give online. You can text to give. We have a lot of different ways. And then we talk about communion. <sighs> communion is that time where we come around the table together. It's that time where we get a glimpse of experiencing what it is that there is now no slave or free or Greek or Jew or male or female. It's that table that breaks down all of our differences, social, economic, race, political, all of that goes away. For a moment, we join through space and time with others who come to acknowledge that they are part of this body of Christ. And there we receive for ourselves the body of Christ. We find the one who was forsaken, but in that forsakenness, we find grace in the cup and the bread. So I encourage you, gather with your family right now in a few minutes during the songs, gather with your family and take communion together. And then we close in prayer. This is a tough psalm to pray. But we close in prayer and we pray in those times when we feel like God is with us and we feel God and we hear God and we are in step with God. But we pray also in those times when it's so difficult to even make the words formed with our lips because it feels like our breath is being taken from us, from the darkness around us, and yet we pray. So wherever you find yourself today, I encourage you to pray. Join me as we pray these words together. Lord God, let our hearts be broken. Let our hearts be broken by the things that break your heart. Let us learn to love as you love, even though we know that with love comes suffering. Let us sit in that suffering. Don't let us be comfortable until all are comforted. Strengthen us and help us to cry out to you, O Lord, and hear our cries. Hear the cries of your people, O Lord, and do not leave us here in this darkness. Amen. Go and be the church.